This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you were born before the year 2001, then you probably remember watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. To be honest, I wasn't a huge fan of the show growing up. I thought it was too slow and it was kind of boring. And in all honesty, I was mostly mad that Barney was over. A couple of years ago, though, I saw a documentary about Mr. Rogers. And it helped me realize that he had a profound ability to teach little children big truths in simple ways. In one clip, Mr. Rogers brings out a puppet named Daniel the Tiger. And Daniel's frustrated that he's not big and strong yet. And so he begins to sing, Sometimes I wonder if I'm a mistake. I'm not like anyone else I know. When I'm asleep or even awake, sometimes I get to dreaming that I'm just a fake. I'm not like anyone else. And as he finishes singing his song, his friend Lady Aberlin starts to sing a different song. She tells him that she likes who he is now and who he's becoming. And she reminds him that she is his friend. And eventually they both sing their songs on top of each other. And it's as if these two songs are fighting. What Mr. Rogers was trying to illustrate here is that we have two songs competing to be heard. One that's false, and one that's true. If you've been a Christian for any time, then you've experienced this battle of songs, if you will. Our enemy wants us to sing his song. His song says, Jesus isn't God. He's not your creator. He's not your redeemer. So don't live for him. If we're going to combat that song, then we need a better song. We need a song that lifts our eyes to the glory of God and the majesty of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul has given us a song that does just that. This morning, we're going to look at what the scholars call the Colossian Hymn. Some believe that this hymn or poem was written prior to this letter and that it was already being used in corporate worship. The Colossians would have known this song. Others believe that Paul wrote this song specifically for this letter. And they could have potentially after that used it for corporate worship. I'm probably more aligned with that second view. Regardless, we can all agree with Pastor H.B. Charles when he says this. Whether or not this was a hymn written for worship, it should lead us to worship. So that's my hope in studying this passage, that we would gaze at the beauty of Christ and worship Him with all of our lives. In light of this, read along with me. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, a couple of weeks ago we looked at Colossians 3.16. And we saw that the word of Christ dwells richly in us when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, our passage this morning is an example of a hymn. And so you might be wondering, well, what is a hymn? A hymn was a song or a poem written with the aim of praising a god or a ruler. And so while the Romans sang hymns in praise of their gods or even Caesar, Christians sang hymns in praise of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. And we find one of those hymns here. Paul had just reminded this church that God had delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul could have just moved on to his next point, but instead, almost like a a musical, he breaks out into song. And he starts proclaiming who this beloved son is. And like any good song, there's a main idea and an intentional structure. And so Paul's main idea is this. Christ is preeminent in all things. Again, Christ is preeminent in all things. He expresses this main idea in two stanzas, if you will. In stanza one, found in verses 15 through 17, we see that Christ is preeminent in creation. Then in stanza two, found in verses 18 through 20, we see that Christ is preeminent in the new creation. So let's first look at stanza one. Christ is preeminent in creation. In verses 15 through 17, we're going to see two he is statements. First, we see that he is the image of the invisible God. The word image here is used in the Gospels to talk about a portrait on a coin. And so think about it this way. When you see a penny, you see President Lincoln's face. And even though you can't see him in flesh, the coin reminds you of who he was and what he did. The text is communicating something similar about Jesus, that even though we can't see God, he's infinite, invisible spirit who dwells in unapproachable light. We see who he is and what he's like in Jesus. Don't be confused, though. Jesus isn't merely a portrait of the Father. Jesus portrays or reveals what the Father is like because Jesus is God. If we want to know what the Father's like then, we need to look to the Son. This is why Jesus tells Philip this in John 14, 9. 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 similarly says that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Son shares in the same divine nature with the Father and the Spirit, one God in three persons. So the Son is eternal, infinite, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-good. He's the spitting image of His Father. This is why author Michael Reeves wisely states this in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. There is no God living in heaven who is unlike Jesus, for He is God. So if you want to know what the Father's like, then look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The text goes on to say that the Son is the firstborn of all creation. There have been some in church history that have misinterpreted this passage. Uh, They've said that this text teaches that the Son was the first thing that the Father created. And so they say that the Father is like big G God, and that the Son is little G God. Our Jehovah's Witness neighbors are an example of this. But this isn't what Paul means here. When he calls the son the firstborn, what Paul means is that the son has the right to all of creation. He's the king and everything is his. But how do we know that this is right? Well, look at the next verse. It starts with the word for. And when we see the word for at the beginning of a verse, that means that the following statement is going to ground the previous statement. It's going to give the reason. And so why is the Son the firstborn of all creation? We see that all things are created by Him. This isn't some things or most things. This is all things. Everything in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible, the physical and the spiritual, even thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, The Son has the right to all things because all things were created by Him. We also see that all things are created through Him. Like a farmer sowing seed, God creates through His Word. And as God's Word goes out, life sprouts forth. So think back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we see God creating through His Word. He speaks and things come into existence. John 1 further clarifies that the Son Himself is the Word who was in the beginning with God and is God. John 1.3 says that all things were made through Him, through the Word the Son. And so what we see in Genesis 1, John 1, and Colossians 1 is that creation comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. One God who is Trinity, who creates as Trinity. 
And so it's through the Son that all things have their life and being. But Paul doesn't stop there. We see that all things are also created for the Son. We've all probably thought this at some point. What's the purpose of my life? Why does everything exist? Why does anything matter? The Bible doesn't leave us without answers. You and I and everything in the universe were created for the Son. So the goal of our lives isn't to make much of ourselves. You weren't created for you. The goal of our lives is to worship and honor Jesus by enjoying Him forever to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because we are created for Him. He's the firstborn. Everything is His. Well, this brings us to our second He is statement. We see that He is before all things. Again, we need to acknowledge that the Son existed before anything else. He wasn't the first creature that God made. He's the creator that all things are made by, through, and for. And that includes time itself. Time is a creation. But this isn't merely talking about a time thing. Paul wants to emphasize here again that Christ is above creation. He's in front of it, meaning he's supreme over it. Paul is saying that the Son is the Lord over the cosmos. He's the King of the universe. And He doesn't merely reign, He also sustains. This is why it says that He holds all things together. This might not stand out in the English, but that term hold together is in the perfect tense in the Greek. It literally means that the Son has held all things together and that He's presently holding all things together. This means that there has never been a time when the Son wasn't sustaining everything. Even in His incarnation on earth, Jesus held the universe together. As Mary held Him as a baby, He also held her and all of the universe together. As Jesus held himself up on the cross, he also held all of reality together. And now at the right hand of the Father, the risen Jesus is holding all things together. So I wonder, do you find yourself here today anxious? Are you fearful about the future. Listen, we live in a fallen world, and there are very real things to be scared of. Wars, illness, the loss of a loved one, marriages collapsing, kids falling away from the faith. We need to remember that even if this worst-case scenario comes true, 
Christ will still hold all things together. And he will still hold all things together when sin, death, and the devil are cast away forever. And until that day, we need to sing this song to ourselves again and again. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Jesus holds you in all things together. Well, we saw in stanza one of this hymn that Christ is preeminent in creation. And in this second stanza, we see that Christ is preeminent in the new creation. So look with me at verse 18. Again, we get two he is statements. First, we see that he is the head of the body, the church. That language might seem strange to you, but think about it this way. While we don't have a king in this country, we do have a president. And the president is the head of state. And he represents the citizens in our country here and to the world. Similarly, Adam, the first man, was our representative before God. He was the head of the, whole, of the old humanity. And when he disobeyed God, all of humanity was cursed in him. And that curse is sin and death. And unlike our nation, we can't just elect another Adam. Yet God in his grace and mercy doesn't leave us to despair. In Christ, he's given us a new head. And with the risen Christ as our head, he makes us a new humanity. While mankind was corrupted by Adam's sin, the new humanity, the church, is healed by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This brings us to our second he is statement. It says that he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I have said that word preeminent a lot. It means to be first or in first place. For example, you might say that the Beatles were a preeminent band. Over the course of their career, they had 20 number one hits and 34 top 10 singles. Most impressively, though, the Beatles held the top five spots on the Billboard Hot 100 simultaneously on April 4th, 1964. No one had ever done that before. Not Elvis, not Johnny Cash, no one. They weren't just preeminent in one spot. They dominated the whole thing. The Beatles were mere men, though. And as great as their accomplishments were, they pale in comparison to Christ. 
Jesus isn't just preeminent in creation, he's preeminent in everything, including the new creation. Verses 19 and 20 explain why this is. Notice that verse 19 starts with the word for again. And Paul is grounding his statement about Christ's preeminence in the new creation with what follows. So first, Jesus is preeminent because the fullness of God dwells in him. Those terms fullness and dwelling remind us of the temple in the Old Testament. God was present with his people by dwelling in the temple. And yet we know that the temple ultimately pointed to Christ. He's the better temple that God's fullness is pleased to dwell in. This is why John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt here literally means that he tabernacled or that he templed among us. He set up his tent. So in Christ's incarnation, we see the beautiful meeting place of God in man. As we've already talked about, Jesus shares in the divine nature with the Father, but he also shares in our humanity, though without sin, he's truly God and truly man. He's the true and better Adam who's worthy of ruling and filling the new creation. And if you're in the risen Christ, then Colossians 2.10 says that you've been filled in him. Because of his fullness, church, you are lacking in nothing. All you need for life and godliness is found in Christ. You don't need some new teaching. You don't need some new spiritual experience. You don't need religious festivals or special diets. Why? Because you have Christ. You have his spirit and you have his word. You've been filled by your sufficient king. This brings us to the second reason for Jesus' preeminence in the new creation. Jesus is preeminent because all things are being reconciled through him. It wasn't just humanity that was affected by sin. All of creation has been corrupted by it. Romans 8.22 says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And all of us know that's true. Just watch the news and you'll see the earth groan in earthquakes and hurricanes and blizzards. Sin corrupts everything. And the only solution for cosmic corruption is Christ's cross. Jesus' blood is powerful enough not just to give us peace with God, it's powerful enough to cure the whole cosmos. And while we might not see everything at peace yet, there will be peace when Christ returns. And on that day we'll sing, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. 
Having said that, this peace isn't just a future reality. We can see it spilling into our reality now in the church. If you're a Christian, then you now have vertical peace with God. And because of Christ's death, there is therefore now no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen? That peace, though, isn't just vertical. Because of Christ's cross, we now have peace with one another. It's horizontal. We're one body with Christ as our head. We can see this just a couple pages over in Colossians 3.15. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. If Jesus is preeminent in the church, then we need to be ruled by his peace. Listen, this doesn't mean that we never have conflict. We have real differences, and we commit real sins. But this does mean that we pursue peace when we sin against each other. We don't stuff it. We don't act like it didn't happen. We don't talk behind each other's backs, and we don't spread division. Instead, we should be honest with each other and pursue this peace that Christ has bought for us. This means that we assume the best of each other. We talk through it. And if necessary, we repent of real sin. We say that we're sorry. And so what often controls you when conflict in the church happens? Is it being right? Is it self preservation or is it even vengeance brothers and sisters those things belong to the old man but you are a new creation in Christ and you've been given a new song not a song of rebellion but a song of peace and so let's be controlled by the peace of Christ He shed his very own blood to create it. Friend, do you know that song of peace? Or do you find yourself humming along with that song of rebellion? Does the hymn of your heart sing, Jesus isn't God. He's not my creator. He's not my redeemer. I don't need to live for him. Listen, King Jesus will consummate peace throughout the cosmos. And to finally do that, he will crush all rebellion against him. And everyone who's against him will be cast into hell forever. But friend, as far as I know, that day is not today. And I pray that you would today trust in the preeminent Christ. I pray that you would turn from your sin to find a Savior who welcomes sinners, who is gentle and lowly in heart. 
He lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve on a cross. And He was raised to give eternal life and peace to all who trust in Him. And so, trust in Him. And you will be reconciled to the one you were made for. And when all things are reconciled to Him, you will gaze at His beauty and you will enjoy Him forever.